Digital Drift, episode 22, recorded Sunday the 1st of June 2014, X-Men Days of Future Past. Professor? You're going to find this hard to believe. I was sent here for you. From the future? 50 years from now. <laughs> Could you give me that one more time, please? Stay with me. In the beginning, the Sentinels were just targeting mutants. And they began targeting everyone. I've come a long way to guide us, to bring us together. The X-Men. We need your help. Tell whoever it was that sent you. I'm busy. The person who sent me was you. It's going to take all of us to end this war. Your beast? I don't know what you're talking about. Pretty strong for a scrawny kid. I said you need to leave. You and I are going to be good friends. You just don't know it yet. We're going to need Mystique. Why? You're a cold-hearted bitch. Well, don't hold back. Where's Magneto? That man is a monster. He's being held a hundred floors beneath the most heavily guarded building on the planet. I know a guy. He'd be a young man now. He's fascinating. He's a pain in the ass. Prison break? That's illegal, you know. Only if you get caught. Charles. Good to see you too, old friend. This is gonna be fun. There is a new enemy out there. You'll need a new weapon for this war. Everything that happens now is in your hands. In the future... Do I make it? No. If you haven't yet seen my multiple reality spanning alternate timeline theory video, which also explains what happens in this movie, then track it down on the Digital Drift YouTube channel. It will make what we're about to talk about that much clearer. I'm including it in audio form at the very end of this show, along with some extra questions and answers from Sharon. The time code will be in the show notes if you want to jump there first. If you've already seen it and don't need a refresher, then on with the show. The retaining of both this ongoing film history and Brian Singer as a major creative force moving forward for the X-Men films sends a clear message. This will always be a world with more character and gravity than the slew of one or two-off Marvel films in the 2000s. The Daredevils, the Fantastic Fours, the Ghost Riders, with all their now-forgotten universes. However, since it remains intrinsically linked with the pilot-style X-Men film from 2000, the world, characters, direction and approach cannot be radically rethought. This also means it will never be a series elevated to the heights of the Marvel Cinematic Universe – Carrying on, this will stay firmly in the middle, neither disappointing too greatly, nor excelling beyond its boundaries. 
they remain the dependable Volvo of superhero movies. The supermarket pizza, the affordably priced bottle of wine. There will be good films, there may even be great films, but never brilliant ones. Doing First Class without Wolverine was their first risk. This new timeline retcon is their second. Having to look beyond Logan, Eric, Charles and Raven in future movies will hopefully be their third. Now, if you remember, the time when this series started to flag was the time when Brian Singer stepped down from it. He was on board for X-Men 3, then he ditched it and went and did Superman Returns, taking Cyclops with him. X-Men 3 was a dog's breakfast. The follow-up spin-off, Origins Wolverine, everybody hated, and it looked like the series might need to be rebooted then. They then turned First Class into a subtly alternate universe prequel or origin story of sorts. But as I understand it, I think uh, Brian Singer was actually producer on that. Hang on. He produced X-Men First Class, but not The Wolverine. So really, that means The Wolverine is the only X-Men film which has actually been able to fly without Singer. It's possible that if he'd been there, the ending wouldn't have been so botched. But it also means that to make sure that these films are actually flying right and on, on a straight track, they need to have Singer there. Or if not, if they're going to go with someone else, they need to have a new direction. But from the looks of it, this one's going to do extremely well, and they don't need a new direction. And again, I'd rather have supermarket pizza than, what's the worst pizza ever? School dinner pizza. Do you remember that square tray stuff? Ew. Yeah. With um, chopped up peppers and sweet corn on it. You or, got peppers and sweet corn? Yeah. We didn't even get know? that. Ooh. It was just a square of extremely hot tomato sauce with a bit of flavourless cheese on top and an extremely thick bread crust. Mm. Ugh. Ugh. See, I was going to say supermarket value pizza, but that sounds worse. Yeah. <laughs> Which film is supermarket value pizza? It's got to be Fantastic Four, hasn't it? It's pizza, Jim, but that's pretty much it. So okay. does that mean that the the terrible school one is um, Ghost Ride of Vengeance? Days, no, something of vengeance, Spirit of Vengeance. Maybe, or Punisher Warzone, or Elektra. So let's take this film section by section and see what was accomplished. So we'll start off in the future in 2023. First thing I noticed, it starts with a Holocaust, which is a, uh, I don't want to say nice, but a canny callback to the way that the very first X-Men starts. You've got bodies being dumped into a, uh, a pit and it automatically uh, ties a uh, direct parallel with the Nazis. It has also um, several Terminator references, which links it up with the idea of the war against the machines. Mm. Yeah, you were counting them, weren't you? I was. There were three within the first 20 minutes. Including, were you including Logan's naked ass? Was that later? I think you made that your fourth. 
Okay. <laughs> so carry on, because obviously Terminator is a big deal for you. Well, the sound effects for a start kind of hint at the iconic Terminator theme tune. But then you've got uh, the camera pans down to uh, a row of human bodies, uh, human bones even, including skulls. skulls. Yeah. Uh, and then a, I think it's a sentinel foot, but some kind of, of booted foot anyway, comes down on one of the skulls, um, which is obviously in T2. the uh, T2 intro. Yeah. So there was that. There was the... So you said the sound effect. It actually goes... Doo, 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 doo. Yes. Yeah. Nice. I can't remember what the third one was. I guess it must have been Wolverine's naked ass. Well, there's the time travel thing. And the, oh, you can only go back once. It's one way. Blah, blah. Yeah. But they don't have the whole nothing dead can go thing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, See, he... Terminator avoids all this crap. It's just a bunch of exposition fed to Sarah by uh, uh, by Kyle later on. Uh, Terminator, they keep you guessing. They don't give you the exposition dump. Well, exactly. It's it's the the thing with the way it's presented in Terminator, though, is that it's always in a thirty-year-old movie. I might add. Well, indeed, uh, which still holds up and is still awesome. Mm. Um, but whenever something is being explained, it's always because at that particular time it needs to be explained. Um, either Sarah is asking Kyle a question, or he's being interviewed by psychologists or police officers, or you know, someone's actually having a conversation with someone which in real life they would logically have this starts off once it's had all this great visual imagery setting up the world which I admit and am happy about the fact that it, it works very effectively to give you a sense of where you are and when you are you then have a group of people I think after they do the, the blinking and the portaling and the uh, sentinel killing and the zipping back in time Charles and Eric turn up in the bunker and there then ensues a literal ten minute oh it's not ten minutes it's, it's probably closer to five but feels it feels like ten, ten yeah. minutes um, where they're, they're like they're explaining things that frankly if they don't know it's like have you been asleep for the last fifteen years it just doesn't make any sense that they would be... But this is the director who thought that people would think that the basketballs were exploding. Oh my God! I'm endangering your life! Cover me! You're covered. Trust your audience. If that Right, okay. Frankly, this is... He's never going to, Sharon. He's they, never going to trust his audience. Yeah, but I can audience. still say it. If they have held with you this long, they know what's going on. If they're new to this franchise, they're fools for coming in at this point. But if you're doing your job properly, they will pick it up as you go along. You do not have to have a recap. Okay. So there's a recap. We've spent longer talking about it than the actual recap takes. But then we tend to on this show. Um, the actual the, the uh, action sequence with the Sentinels busting in and, and the various X-Men uh, doing their X-Men thing, I, I've realised after making these notes, is the most X-Men-y moment of the film because once you get back into 73, the X-Men team is whittled down to almost nobody. So it, this is your chance to get sort of the, the, the big action sequence going on and, uh, and there's a lot at stake, obviously, and they're all horribly killed, uh, except for Kitty at the end. And... Um, 
Fees, yeah, technically, newcomers are introduced to Bishop, who hardly gets any. I think he has nothing to say. I think he roars at one point. You got Iceman, you got Colossus, you got Blink, you got the Human Torch. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, I don't know why he's there, but the Human Torch is totally there. It's not Johnny Storm, obviously, but yeah, they, they got a mutant with the exact same power. It's um, um it's not Sunspot. No, uh, yes, it is. It's Robert Costa. Yeah, is he called actually, Robert Acosta? Somebody calls him Robert Acosta later oh, okay. on. Right, well then that's Sunspot with the exact power of the Human Torch, which he didn't exactly have. He anyway. turns into lava, sort of. It's not he goes black. Quite exactly the same. Ooh. Yes. You're thinking of magma. I am. But Sorry, it- geek out, folks. Sorry. Blink, I was really happy to see because I'm, I was uh, the Age of Apocalypse is a, uh, a 90s crossover uh, series which got me into uh, X-Men in general. And Blink was there for a few issues and then she disappeared. And she, I mean, she's been in and out of X-Men uh, continuity ever since then, uh, like, you know, in, in little tiny appearances and alternate reality things. But basically, she had died just a few months before this during the Phalanx Covenant, so uh, after just being introduced. So this was a case of like a, a rare chance to get to see this very obscure X-Man related character and her all of her portal related stuff there was a bit too much sort of like posing while she was doing the opening of portals but I, I think they kind of needed to sort of visually say to people look the portal opens she points to it then something else comes through on the other side and, and that was elegantly done in, a, in an amusing and interesting way Speedy thing goes in. Speedy, Speedy thing, thing comes, comes out. out. Yeah, to the point also, where I, I kind of wish she'd been um, characterised a lot more, so that maybe she might come back in later films. But oh, definitely for that. I because mean, they've tied themselves down with ages and things. This is one of the double binds of all all this. Um, you know, keeping it to the same universe and and uh, making sure because in the X Men comics, it seems like everyone can be brought in. In this, there's a definite decades between scenario going on wherein. There's a lot of people who really can't be there because they're dead, having died of old age after, you know, natural causes. And by the same token, you can't have people who don't turn up and, and until the late 2000s suddenly turn up earlier because, I mean, without time travel, I guess. I suppose you could, but um, there's definitely segregation and separation of the various X teams. Indeed. Um, but certainly one thing I really did like about the, the characters that they chose for the, this introduction, uh, was the sense of in the future there will be ethnic diversity and X chromosomes. Um, because. <laughs> you get the most women in the future. You have, well, yeah, you, you do. And you have, you know, a variety of skin tones and ethnic Including pink for Clarice. She's and, literally got pinky, lilac-y skin. Yeah. And then, you know, throw back to 1973. Well, of course, everybody was a white male, except, of course, for the one who's a blue female. I suppose in terms of diversity, you have a person of short stature in a role where nobody makes any comment about the fact that he's of short stature. And in 73, that's frankly unlikely. In terms of, like, that some businessmen that he met with would have gone, oh, you're small. Yes, yes, I'm small. And? He's a rich white man. I think they would get over ah, that fairly quickly. Yeah, his richness certainly gives him kind of a get out. Put him on a built up chair. Certainly doesn't help Tyrion. Everyone's always talking about him. He's as rich as they come. Well, true. Anyway, Kitty Pride, it would appear, has got a secondary mutation. Well, three, technically. I mean, she can look exactly the same age as she did nearly 20 years ago. 
2023. And uh, she can also not only phase through walls, but put people's heads back through time. Now, this power actually belonged in the original comic to... I mean, you, you want to talk about information, Dub. The original comics were written by Chris Claremont. Monsieur Information Dump. I mean, the whole of that first one is an information dump. And then when you start the second one, they spend like half the comic reiterating Recapping previously on X-Men. In, previously in this two-part comic arc. It's You're not short like on a... space here, Chris. Get on with it. And then everyone announces what they're about to do, then does it, and then talks about the fact that they just did it. Anyway, um, but yeah, it's Rachel Summers, the uh, uh, daughter of Scott and Jean, and uh, she has uh, she has the power of the Phoenix, and for some reason that uh, happens to have a, a secondary mutation to it of sending people's brains back through time. And she actually sends Kitty back from a 40-year-old woman to, like, a 15-year-old girl. Maybe younger, like, 13-year-old girl. Back in the 80s. I had a theory on how that might happen, but... It actually doesn't make any sense. What's that? Well, the, the well, phasing. I was no, no, no. Well, I, in terms of how Rachel could have done it and how that could have been kind of transposed onto Kitty, but uh, in the sense that obviously Rachel's telepathy is extremely powerful, um, that she could basically go into your mind and uh, strip away the the barriers between your your present consciousness and your past memories and fuse them and allow you to basically enact things within your own memory and kitty so could like assassin's creed argue, kind of well, yeah kind of uh, so kitty could arguably do the same thing physically in terms of phasing the neurons so that your memories and your present consciousness all merged into one however all you'd actually be able to affect in both cases is your own memories not the actual things that happened at the time yeah, let, let's get really down on the X-Men series for violating physics, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I just, I, I was just idly trying to work out yeah. a way in which it could happen, and, and yeah. it doesn't work. <laughs> I think in all seriousness, they just wanted to get Kitty in there somewhere, and uh, if, if it just happened to be uh, a complete, like, crowbarred in secondary mutation, which no one ever mentioned before, and has never been attributed to her, so be it. I actually think that uh, Kitty should have been the. I think did I mention this before? Kitty should have been the rogue character from the from the word go. Yes, considering that 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 means they would not have completely wasted the character of rogue. Yes, and the character of Kitty. Yeah, uh, I and think the they, acting ability of Ellen Page. They went for rogue back in X Men One because it was the kind of power that didn't have any direct, obvious application of positivity to it is the kind of power that would terrify a kid, make the kid feel like doubly isolated and, and kind of just gives you everything you need to, to have an outcast of a character to, you know, that her finding a place was, was that made, thus made that much more impactful. But it should have been Kitty. Yes, it should. And they could quite easily have worked in a narrative where she maybe has difficulty controlling her phasing abilities, so yeah. she tries to touch somebody, her hand goes straight through them. Feels like she's not there, mm. starts to get disconnected with people in general, everybody's yeah. afraid of her. But, you know, let's not rewrite the whole X-Men series, we'll be here all day. It's okay, we can come back in time and start again. <laughs> so, yeah, we've already gone through super information dump. And uh, then it has to be Wolverine. It has to be Wolverine. He's the only one awesome enough to do this. <laughs> if it had just been Eric, 
You know, there's the bit at the end where um, uh, it sort of it, it concerns Eric, Charles, and Raven. I actually thought that uh, Kitty was going to send Eric back to his younger self with the burden of prior knowledge and understanding what has come in between times as a result, as a direct result of his actions. But they don't. It's got to be Wolverine. And I don't really, it's not a bad thing that Wolverine's in it. And in fact, I love the fact that he doesn't save the day. He's just kind of there to explain shit, get people in the door, make sure that this one's a winner, box office wise. Uh, he does his, his fighting, but it's clear at several points that he's been somewhat outmoded by other mutants. Well, that, you say that's fine. Unfortunately for me, that's a little bit movie breaking because if I'm looking at something on the screen and I'm thinking of too the, much about the matter, yeah, the, yeah, the financial and logistical reasons of why <laughs> the producers decided to do this, it is no longer an engaging narrative for me. See, also Iron Man three. Well, indeed, and then. Couple that with the fact that I'm I'm sitting here watching Hugh Jackman, who is great. Don't get me wrong, some of his turns as Wolverine have been absolutely fantastic. He is a skilled actor. Especially the standing Wolverine. between James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender. Something you'd like to do. And um Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very hard to look like a, a professional level actor in those circumstances well we've never actually seen him attempt it before i'm kind of glad that this happened because you, you get the three you know superb act- i mean technically there's the five and thus i mean this is a dream come true really in terms of x-men fans i'm actually really glad this film came to pass as it did this could have been a whole lot worse yes, i really could. like this film that's true yes um and, and just the the elements that it throws up and it doesn't poodle around too much it never really feels cheap or pathetic. Nothing about it is really stupid. There are a few like head slapping moments, but nothing is really stupid. Not on a game breaking level like no. X Men One or X Men Two it, or X Men Three or the X Men Origins Wolverine. I think probably the <laughs> or first the Wolverine. So basically, as well as this is the second best relative to first class. I think the my my main criticism of the things that I had issues with in the script, if we discount all of the bits where they go massive exposition, because that's kind of massive beside the point. Exposition. exposition. By the way, whenever I do that, you folks at home have got to like cross your arms across your chest like Wolverine snicking his claws at the same time and like growl and snarl and like go exposition. Of course. My only issue with it, really, is that there are points where it's rushed. It feels like they had an idea of where they were going to take something, but then they wanted to get from A to B a little bit too quickly. Mm. And it feels like they had more in mind, but they abandoned it in favour of just moving on to the next point. Yeah. Thankfully, it doesn't feel too action heavy, like they just crammed in action sequence after superfluous action sequence. There is a lot of time and a lot of real estate given to drama. Yes. Which, as we have established, is very important for this series. Absolutely. And you've got some outstanding moments of performance. Uh, Fassbender's speech on the plane mm. had me in tears. Yeah. That was fantastic because the, suddenly the, uh, the the argument between the two of them, the shades of grey between the two of them begin to blur into one another and you start to wonder to yourself, actually... Eric has a point, and this comes back to what was happening in X-Men First Class. That's when the series is flying the highest, when you start to wonder, maybe Magneto is onto something. When he's being super Hitler, no, not at all. 
And when Charles is being total goody two-shoes, he becomes a bit boring. When they sort of meet in the middle, fascinating. Well, this and- is the thing. What's, what's so um, engaging about uh, Charles and Eric and the way that they are pre- they've been presented in these couple of films is that their ideologies are so similar. What differs is their methods. Mm. And ultimately, when Charles's method of choice is to sit in a room with the curtains closed, off his head on painkillers, which is effectively what this treatment is, it it dulls all the voices in his head that tell him that he's doing nothing while people die. It takes away the pain, it takes away the responsibility, and thus he doesn't have to feel the resentment. That's right, yeah. It's effectively like making him Professor X no more every couple of days. Yeah. That was an excellent, excellent development. And uh, one of, one of the, uh, the best sources of drama. James McAvoy in particular in this is exceptional. Exceptional. He is. He, he, he commits himself body and soul to the point where Fassbender, while he is excellent... <laughs> Well, we have to a, stop using X words now. Well, he is ex. Ah, can't do it. <laughs> well, he is brilliant on the plane. Isn't as on fire as McAvoy is the whole way through. It's not so much his film. He doesn't have to realise as much as young Charles does. It's not so much his journey. It's not as much of a, of a, a, a double-handed one as First Class. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because ultimately this is um, this is Charles really growing in a way that we've never really seen before outside of first class. How did you lose them? The treatment for my spine affects my DNA. You sacrificed your power so you could walk. What do you know about it? I've lost my fair share. Huh. Dry your eyes, Eric. It doesn't justify what you've done. You've no idea what I've done. I know that you took the things that mean the most to me. Well, maybe you should have fought harder for them. If you want to fight, Eric, I will give you a fight. Let him come. You abandoned me! You took her away and you abandoned me! Angel. Azazel. Emma. Banshee. We were supposed to protect them! Eric, where were you, Charles? You abandoned us all. Springing Eric. Let's go back a little bit before the uh, scene on the plane. Uh, simply to talk about Quicksilver, uh, one of the, uh, the best action additions to this and the best comedy additions. Um, he's played by Evan Peters. As uh, it's, It says Peter Maximoff because I'm assuming they thought Pietro Maximoff would sound a little too foreign. But, uh, yeah, he's one of the two Quicksilvers we're going to be getting in the space of a year. And I was thinking, oh, he's, he's, people made a big deal about the fact that his costume sucked. And I thought, there's no way they're going to be able to pull a, you know, a, a decent Quicksilver out of the hat. I mean, look at what they've done with all these other mutants. And he knocked me on my ass. And I'm so glad to be surprised in this case. Mainly because throughout him being on screen and him zipping about the place and being cocky and being impatient, I was like, okay, he's kind of entertaining. He's fun. Um, he's like, you know, come on, move up. <laughs> He's like, speed up, granddad, where, you know, that we're, we're not quite entering the digital age, but that's kind of what it feels like. You guys want? I didn't do anything. I've been here all day. Just relax, Peter. We're not cops. No, you're not cops. Hey, what's with this gift to Youngster's place? That's an old card. 
What, a teleporter? No, he's just fast. When I know him, he wasn't so young. Young? You're just old. So who are you? What do you want? We need your help, Peter. What? To break into a highly secured facility. Prison break? So what's in it for me? You get to break into the Pentagon. How do I know I can trust you? Sure, man. It's cool, but it's disgusting. I've just realized this clip doesn't work in audio form. But then during his action sequence, it is technically a replaying of the lobby scene in The Matrix, which we'll talk about when we cover The Matrix, is now a genuinely troubling moment because Neo and Trinity slaughter a bunch of unprepared policemen. In this, Pietro runs rings around them, effectively beats the shit out of them, but leaves them all alive. And all of these bullets are diverted by him in this wonderfully elegant, fun light-hearted but uh, kind of a sad moment with this this was wonderful bit of music time in a bottle by jim croce and it wasn't until i actually got out of the cinema and started really thinking about it that it was like that was a portrait of what pietro's existence is actually like that's how fast he lives all the time. I mean, I think, I'm not sure if like his mutant power is to harness the s- speed and he doesn't have to live that slow all the time, but you can understand why he'd be impatient waiting for everybody else to catch up with him. I sympathize. Well, he agrees to go with them because um, it's a challenge. Yeah. Um, and in fact, you made the comparison with the idea of the digital age getting into the Pentagon. That's like, the hacker challenge. Yeah. He, he's got to do one of those righteous hacks, you know, with one of those Gibsons. Go for a Gibson, yeah. Got to be done. Um, but it, it did occur to me that um, he, there seemed to be something a little off about his behavior. Um, and there's a, a very brief scene where you see him sitting down with a, a child who is obviously his little sister on his knee. And it suddenly occurred to me that it's quite possible that his mutant power speeds up his metabolism to the point where he ages faster than everybody else. So they could feasibly be twins. Meaning they were born at exactly the same time. He's just gotten to 16, 17, far, far faster than her. Indeed, which would also fit with the fact that his his attitude to the things that he does, the the stealing and the you know breaking into places all that kind of thing pretty immature exactly his his view of it seems to be more that of a nine ten year old boy than a 16 17 year old Mm. boy but he's so chipper about it and it it could be so easy for him to be isolated from humanity and darkness no parents or no father and there's that bit where he's like you know my mother once met somebody with magnetic powers a a eric a and Eric was like, oh, that was, what, what seven years ago? What? No. Uh, he didn't say that, but uh, if, if your theory is correct, that may have been what he was thinking. Or he could have been thinking 16 years ago. But instead, it's it's almost like he's his own best friend. He's his own, the only person that he has for company when he's sort of in these very long, slow hours between now and the end, and, and his inevitable speedy demise. So there's kind of a bitter sweetness about him, and he, he's, he surprised the hell out of me as a character. Somebody effectively living on a different plane of existence to the rest of us, yet present. 
I want to say Peter Dinklage surprised me, but he didn't at all. He's brilliant as always. In fact, I've, I've, uh, I saw the station agent back in the uh, day, and I was like, right, keep an eye on this one. I, I just want him to be in as many roles as possible. He's fantastic. Can't really talk about him without superlatives. He has a dignity to him. He has a, uh, a manner about him. Not dissimilar, in fact, to um, Campbell Scott, in terms of that he always seems to expect to be taken seriously. I think what surprise isn't quite the word, but what took me with his performance in this uh, was that I started off thinking, well, he's very similar to Tyrion. Um, but then I realised that it, it, it's it's the way he plays out the Shades of Grey. It's the way he, he takes a character and behaves in a certain way and then he'll do something that at first appears to be out of character but then works it back so that you can see that the these threads of behavior and characterization actually fit together really um impressively and they are all part of the same person it's just that that person has different ways of responding to different circumstances Mm. and different people there are also uh, ways that you could uh, infer various bits of characterization to him simply by observing how he behaved, how he expected to be taken seriously, uh, how he never made uh, an issue of his stature and neither did anyone else. And a little clues about the fact that he started off um, in, with Trask Industries going for bionic limbs and going for uh, ways to help other people who would be disabled. It makes him a far more Shades of Grey character than simply a mutant hater, as he's often well, been portrayed. His speech about um, the fact that he sees uh, Homo Superior, for want of a better term, as genuinely being the next stage of evolution and that he admires them, and yet he very clearly still doesn't see them as human or certainly as people mm. because he thinks that he has the right to capture them and experiment on them and cut them into pieces so he can see how they tick um and and like i say it almost at first glance seems difficult to bring those things together but then you look at at things like his expression when he's putting these uh ideas across and something clicks and i want to see more more of him so that i can see those ideas explored I'd certainly like him to be a returning character, especially considering they are averting the standard Sentinel future. I think we'll see the Sentinels again. They were too throwaway there for it to simply be that was it and that was the end of it. We we need to see Wolverine run up on one of them's back and smash it from the uh, top. I have to do it quick then before Hugh Jackman gets too old. Hugh Jackson is never too old. <laughs> Neither is that uh, CGI maquette that uh, played Legolas that one time. <laughs> Good point. (laughs) Hank's the storm in this one, by the way. And Storm's the nobody at all. Hank basically got to be in there going, hey, everyone remember Hank? He's got a couple of lines in this, but that's pretty much it. He's there to characterize Charles and Storm. There's a bit where Wolverine says, there's a bit where Logan, also known as James, says to uh, Charles, 
Uh, he's trying to get him to to fixate on the uh, future and saying, you know, you're going to have students, Scott, Jean, Storm. Remember those names. Her name's not Storm. Do you know why he said Scott Jean Storm? Because Brian Singer doesn't trust his audience to remember that her name is Aurora Munro. Ah, he doesn't want to put holes in the games. He wants to put holes in you. What? There are other ways, more elegant ways to do it. Start with Storm. Have Logan correct himself. You know, remember these names. Storm. No, Aurora. Jean. Scott. The idea being that he starts with the, 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 the X-Men names and then goes to their actual person names. That way you can say to people and seed Aurora Munro as a character rather than Storm the cipher. Because well, she turns up in this and gets killed. That's it. That's all she's there for. never done it before. Why would they start now? I don't know. I say they. Brian Singer. Brian Singer. <laughs> he has no interest in characterising Aurora Munro. Still. I think he's scared of tall, imposing black women. It's possible. However, this scene when uh, uh, Logan's trying to draw Charles out of himself and uh, reinstall faith and confidence in him is one of the centrepieces of the movie where young Charles speaks to old Charles. It absolutely had me welling up. They really got it hit it out of the park at this point. What's the last thing you remember? to see it again now yeah no me too it's one of those <laughs> it's one of those rarely visited themes of just because someone's gone far too far down a path of um a path that leaves them broken a path that leaves them uh, ruined you can come back from that it's the kind of path you can walk in life that allows you to believe that that you've been tainted in some way that there that uh, if you did try to do the right thing you'd only make it worse for other people uh, that's a very very difficult cloud to get out from under. And it also emphasises the idea that in order to get out from under that cloud, the only person that can really do it is you. Yeah. Even if that happens to be you 50 years in the future. Yeah. 
It's not about leaning on other people. To, uh, having other people there to support you, absolutely. Having a, uh, having uh, valuing the right friends, absolutely. But it does take personal strength to actually pull yourself out of that and say that this is a fight worth having. I mean, in the not necessarily in the sense that, that that you can simply pull yourself up by the bootstraps if you're in that situation. That's not what I'm saying at all. But everybody in the world having faith in you is not the same thing as having faith in yourself. Yeah. Again, going back a bit to uh, the uh, botched assassination in Paris, this was a uh, uh, aggressive turn from Eric, but it was specialised enough. And focused enough. It's when Eric decides Raven has to die. She's too dangerous. That I can see genuinely that the fast bender Eric, the Eric that I've now come to know, genuinely going down that road. It being a very cold path for him, but a believable and character consistent path for him to take. Rather than killing everyone on the planet to kill this one person, no matter your strong feelings for this one person. He just shuts himself off. It's scary. But it's a skill that we know he's developed. Yeah. Because we saw it happen in first class. He'd locked himself off from all the, uh, all the things, all the emotions that he had been taught by Shaw would uh, cut him off from his mutant abilities and the emotions which supposedly tapped into those abilities had been amped up. Charles helped him access the more positive side of himself, forget the, you know, the more positive elements of his emotions again, mm. um, to be able to go back in and close those things off again. For some reason, I found this totally believable, whereas when she gets depowered in X-Men 3 and he goes, oh, she's one of them now, and walks off without even a second glance, completely regardless of their ext- extensive history, that just made me think, what a complete shit. And just not want anything to do with the character anymore. That's terrible characterization because it makes you just think, wow, he's a colossal racist. But, you know, he's already tried to kill everyone in the future. This is, again, if we're going to go with my theories, that's Universe A Magneto. I think because of the experience with Shaw, Fastbender's Magneto, as we've seen him, and every knock-on Magneto, including... McKellen playing Magneto in this is a different Eric. Mm. As in, he has been changed and had different experiences. Yeah. And well, is much more complex as a result. I, I suspect that you could, that there's an argument to be made that uh, the reason for that is him being able to focus all of his anger and hatred onto a specific person mm. rather than broadly aimed Hating at humans. the yeah. Nazis. A specifically one specific person who Nazis. is a mutant. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, it takes away that <gasps> element of us and them from him because the person who's caused him the most pain, the most anguish, um, and at the same time has given him the most power is also a mutant. Yeah. See, I would say that there is an argument to be made that first class is, uh, is Eric's journey. It's him Mm. becoming Magneto. Yeah. And this is Charles becoming Professor X. Yes. In fact, I was very, very um, close when I was doing the artwork for this to putting uh, uh, Fassbender on first class and uh, 
McAvoy on this one. However, I found an interesting thing when I was actually applying the artwork. I wanted Eric and Charles for the first one, so you got the older versions of them. So I put Charles on the uh, on X-Men 1, Eric on X-Men 2, because he gets, gets that wonderful sort of, you should have killed me when you had the chance, Charles, moment. And then for X-Men 3, I thought, who's the real star of this one? Well, Wolverine. Yeah, but who's the real star? And it, the story really revolves around Jean. It's, it's a battle for Jean's allegiance and ultimately Jean's soul. And so I stuck Phoenix on the front of uh, X-Men 3. Origins Wolverine, obviously Creed being the highlight against Wolverine. X-Men First Class, I ended up putting both Charles and Eric, because then you got Wolverine on the Wolverine without Creed, because he has already killed his other half. We can go ahead and assume that Creed's dead after the Statue of Liberty incident. And if not, he's been lobotomized at some point on the way. He's not part of Wolverine's life anymore. And for this final one, Mystique, Raven, who's also very, very important in First Class. And I realized it's history repeating. Eric and Charles battle, ideologically speaking, for the Phoenix, for the woman they both tried to pull in one direction and the other. And in this one, Eric and Charles both battle ideologically for Raven. In the first case, Charles was destroyed and Eric effectively won and then the Phoenix destroyed him. So the ultimate end of Magneto's machinations and his war on humanity results in him being depowered, his weapon being destroyed, his cause being for naught and a very uneasy peace developing between humans and mutants, which is then broken by a horrible future war. In this, Charles gets to the point where he could control Raven and then lets her go. He opens his hand, he opens his mind, and he just says, Raven, you're a grown woman, you decide. I'm not going to control you anymore. And good things happen as a result of that. Effectively, this undoes X-Men 3 by symbolically having the exact same conflict again, but with better results with peaceful, truly peaceful results. And then there's also the fact that Raven, like Jean, has red hair. She's called Raven, which is also a bird, and she has the power of regeneration. Ooh, that's why I bring you on this show. <laughs> and because you're my co-host. Conversely, Raven, unfortunately, gets very little to do in this film. She is the driving force of it. She's huge on the poster, and she's the, the MacGuffin. Everyone's chasing after her, and it's a battle for her soul. But kind of like with Jean in the uh, in X-Men 3, you don't really get to see it from her point of view. Not properly. She's, this, this really frustrated me, actually, because she is the driving force in the sense that her actions are what motivates everybody else's behaviour and the course of events. So it would actually be easy from a distance to say, well, she's the most important person in the entire film. However, she is a bottle. It is what she contains, her magic blood, that is actually the driving force of the film. Again with the magic blood. You never get... you You get scenes in which Charles and Eric argue about what... Raven thinks and what Raven feels and what motivated her to do X, Y, Z, you never get Raven herself talking about any of that or getting a scene where she gets to demonstrate any of that until right at the very end where obviously the, the, 
magnitude of the the final choice is put into her hands, which I really liked. I really appreciated that scene, but it was insufficient to me. I, I, I would have really wanted to see more lead up to that, more motivation for why she behaves the way she does. Uh, there's a scene where she bumps into Magneto. Uh, is it an airport? Yeah. And they exchange about five words. There's no real time for her to express how she feels about seeing him after all this time um you know what her responses are to his attitudes and beliefs about what she's been doing given that her main motivation for going over to his side in first class was because she wanted to uh, explore this worldview that he'd presented to her that she'd never seen before where is all that where's that all gone yeah there's, it seems like there's been a whole movie in between these two, which you kind of need to find out. They're, they're talking about doing a Raven spin-off film. If they're gonna, please cover the time between 1964 and 1973. That would be good. Yeah. And then we might actually have some reasons for why she behaves the way she does throughout this. Especially since um, Eric's going to be in prison for most of that time, so she is going to have to be able to make it on her own. I had heard, and this is entirely assumption, or speculation rather, on my part, but I had heard some people commenting that there had been some reluctance by Fox uh, to up Jennifer Lawrence's fee, mm. considering that when they initially signed her on, she was nowhere near the name that she is now. She was earning the Winter's Bone money, not the Hunger Games money. Indeed. Um, and it did occur to me, and again, this is the sort of financial view of the film taking me out of the story of the film, which I always find frustrating. Um, but it did occur to me that it was possible that they didn't give her more to do because they wanted to be able to justify paying her less. I really hope that's yes. not true. Why would, why, why, why would, why would you want less of a really good actress? That doesn't make sense. Like, could you imagine that shit happening with Hugh Jackman for X-Men 2? And then going, oh, Hugh, you're suddenly flavor of the month. Everybody loves you. Right, we're going to reduce your role in this because we don't want to pay you X-Men 2 money. No. Do you know who they did that with? Storm. They were fucking around with Halle Berry. She had to dig her heels in to get equal billing with uh, Hugh Jackman. And then <laughs> the shitty lines they got, they gave her were just exposition. The showdown in Washington, uh, where uh, Eric rips up the entire... <laughs> I, I, I was whispering to you and said, this is kind of like that bit where uh, uh, old Magneto rips up the Golden Gate Bridge and uses it as a ferry. Um, but then I realized that he's actually using it as an enclosure. He's doing using it for practical purposes. And I couldn't stop myself saying, it's a whole different ball game. <laughs> But yeah, again, it's a giant big stunt, which they probably didn't necessarily need to do. 
they're trying to shoot higher and, and make it more visually impressive. And they're trying at least to, to be the equal of the Avengers. They're not succeeding, but they're trying. Well, as you said, it has I'd much a rather that than not try. And it has a practical application because otherwise, if he hadn't done that or done something similar, then there would probably have been people questioning whether the Eric that we now know from this sequence of events would have allowed the Sentinels to um, put the entirety of that area at risk. Because at this stage they're going after humans. He needs some way to keep them going after specific humans. It probably, I'd say this, this probably has the best effects of the, uh, the seven X-Men films. So they're definitely moving in the right direction. The, the days of it feeling like a TV movie are long gone. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, then they, they face down with Nixon, which makes it feel like Watchmen. Yeah. <laughs> which isn't a bad thing. That's a, that's a, that's a good parallel to try to draw. Actually, the worst effect is Nixon's nose. Yeah, I am not a fucking nose. But I did like the fact that the uh, absence of adamantium uh, kind of points out rather rudely that Wolverine is of limited interest when there's things he can't punch. <laughs> the bit where um, uh, where Quicksilver was ru- running round and round the room, you know, owning that entire scene. When he comes out of it, Wolverine's just extending his bone claws. Because he was just about to go in there and start slicing up guys and, like, you know, cutting people with his claws. And that was kind of... It was a strong statement of, look, this guy's powers are actually limited when it comes down to it. And then when Magneto twists him up in metal and tosses him into the lake, there really is only a finite amount that Logan can do. There's only a certain amount that can be snicked at this stage in the X-Men game, the stakes are too high. It, it's not just about him fighting Mystique and then him fighting Sabretooth and then him fighting Deathstrike and then him fighting... Who does he fight in X-Men 3? Spike. <laughs> and then him, Phoenix. He doesn't really fight, he just stabs no. her. Yeah. Uh, but his powers are just so awesome that he can you know, be immune to the, the uh, disintegration powers. And then him fighting Sabretooth and him fighting the Blob and then him fighting Deadpool. That wasn't Deadpool. And him fighting Viper. And then him fighting Silver Samurai. That definitely wasn't Silver Samurai. In this, who does Wolverine really fight? Himself. Indeed. There's no big bad for Wolverine to shiv. And uh, he's kind of granddad. Because Quicksilver's got, got it all in hand. So, I'm hoping... Because you've got Wolverine 3 on the uh, horizon and uh, he'll he'll be in... Uh, they're, they're filming it back-to-back with X-Men Apocalypse. So I'm hoping he's going to kind of take a back seat in uh, X-Men Apocalypse. Just enough to get people in the door. But again, like this, he doesn't have to be the big action star anymore. He can be the teacher. He can be the adult presence. Because of his excellent acting, Hugh Jackman will always be of value to this series. He doesn't have to be the big action guy. I think it's time, you know, there's maybe some new mutants. Or indeed, new old mutants. My favourite take on Wolverine is always when he's dealing with internal stuff. Um, And the fact that what he goes up against in this film mostly is his own memories of what Stryker did to him. Yeah. Definitely lends it more that than just "Hey, cool metal claws can cut through anything." Then again, terrible memories of Weapon X and what Striker did to him. Terrible memories of Jean and pining for her. 
there's only a finite amount of, of pity we can actually have for Wolverine for these same things which he kind of needs to resolve oh no I know but in, in this specifically the idea that um, the, the reason he jarred himself out of the, the time travel situation is is well, the way I interpreted it anyway is that seeing Stryker triggers his healing factor in his head. Yeah. Because he's remembering things that his his physical 1973 body is remembering things that haven't happened yet. So his brain tries to heal it over, and that necessitates kicking the 2023 version of himself out. See, his, that's almost in direct opposition with the shitty adamantium bullet thing. Hmm. But we could maybe forget that because that may be part of universe A or at most universe B and not universe C. Now universe C and what this entails, this is the most exciting thing because uh, as I had hoped, they do away with X-Men 3. They do away with X-Men 3. They kind of even do away with X-Men 2 and 1 as well. We don't actually know what the confluence of events were. We know Rogue got to the X-Men. We know Wolverine got to the X-Men. He seems to have a streak of grey but he's not waking up in 2023. He couldn't possibly be waking up in 2023. Gene would be 10 years older than that, as would Scott. Uh, He's waking up around the time of X-Men 3 or X-Men 2 which took place in the same year, so 2006 on the the general accepted time. Uh, And so when Charles says oh, I've got a lot of explaining to you to do about this. Effectively, what he's about to tell Logan is X-Men 8, The Wolverine 3, X-Men 9, X-Men 10, X-Men 11, whatever will then take it up all the way to 2006 and beyond. I'm intrigued as to where they can go from here because they're bound by the ages in terms of the fact that they can't really say, oh, well, Cyclops is now 20 when he really couldn't be at the, at the time when they're saying, because otherwise that would make him 50 in, uh, in 2006. So, I mean, you know, they can't just bring in Emma Frost without explaining who this new Emma Frost is in relation to the old Emma Frost. So they are going to have to be thoughtful around that. But the restrictions, and I found this with setting my book in an alternate real world, the restrictions make you think harder about the introductions to your story. Because you have to go with an effective real-life time frame and effective real-life geography. You say that couldn't have been 2023 when he woke up, though. Mm-hmm. He has um, a, a grey um, streak in his hair, which suggests it's the exact same time of 2023 when he yeah, had grey exactly. hair. They, and he has a special space clock. Yeah, but they they explain the the way they explain the time travel. And also, Kitty appears to be teaching. Yes, she was, yeah. But when they explain well, how the time travel works, his, he's, he can't, he's been sent back to a specific time. When he comes back to his own body, it will be the time it was when he left. He, he's not just going to randomly drop into himself at some point in between. Okay. Well, that means Jean is in her 50s. She looks good for it. Yep, she looks. We must have really good plastic surgeons in the future. That's hey, what... she looks alive, which is an improvement on the last time we saw her. Yeah. Ditto for Scott, frankly. Either way, one thing we can agree on: X Men Three didn't happen. Yay. Yes. <laughs> and hopefully, the shit at the end of X Men Two didn't happen because that's that's the kind of stuff that now, in retrospect, probably led to the future war. The whole threatening the president bullshit. 
immediately following on from the whole Magneto trying to kill everyone bullshit. Well, one thing we do know, or at least we can assume with fair certainty, I would say, is that the Phoenix side of Jean's psyche has not been locked away by Charles because having gone through that situation with Raven and Mm. made the right decision, it seems very unlikely that he would then make the wrong decision with a 12-year-old girl. Yeah. So I'm hoping we get to see a young Charles wrestling with, do I repress this? Do I not? Because we can't see an old Charles asking himself, why did I repress this? So at least we get to see that conundrum. What's the worst that can happen? Oh, X-Men 3 is the worst that can happen, folks. And, and yeah, I like the fact that, that that opens up the universe and they can effectively do whatever they like. And I also love the idea of them doing more period piece X-Men films. And it kind of solves, at least for the time being, the idea of uh, Magneto being tied to the uh, for, to the Second World War in that if you keep them as period films, he doesn't necessarily have to be so old. that I mean, yeah, he, he and Charles in the far future in 2023 are like 93 years old. Let's face it, folks, uh, Ian McKellen's no spring chicken, neither is Patrick Stewart. They really are getting on a bit. If they can figure out a way to have the older versions of them in the films, even in only a guest starring capacity, it keeps that link alive. Mm. They weren't expecting to play those roles again. Yeah, they sprung course, this on them. They they uh, were doing a, a touring production of Waiting for Godot together. <laughs> Lovely. And I suppose you wouldn't actually, since X Men Three sort of just ends and that's it. And uh, it's like, oh, happy ending. I guess we're all done because I'm depowered and you're dead. And of course, you get the apocalypse reveal at the very very end, uh, which was almost an exact imitation of the Avengers reveal of Thanos. And it's perfectly in a kind of kind of like the. In our theatre, a bunch of people waited around for the very, very end and said out loud, oh, I guess the geeks will know who that is. Yes, it's Apocalypse. En Sabanyeu, that's what they were chanting. Now fuck off out of here. Did you notice that the person who said that, his girlfriend turned to him and said, yes, it's Apocalypse? (laughs) I don't know you. (laughs) Excellent. Apocalypse is very much the Thanos of the X-Men universe, if you will. Now, I suspect with the upcoming apocalypse and with Wolverine hopefully stepping out of the limelight a little, they will bring in Cable. Now, that will be fun for Scott and Jean, who have only, if they if they are in this next one, or maybe the one after that, if they've only just met to kind of deal with the fact that they've got a child from the future. I'm assuming they'll leave out the whole Madeline Pryor thing. That's just too confusing. That That is unnecessarily complicated. I do think... Let's however- try and explain it extremely fast. Back in the original Dark Phoenix saga, after the Dark Phoenix died, a new woman who resembled Jean Grey turned up without her memory, and her name was Madeline Price. Scott fell in love with her, they went off, they had a kid. Turned out she was a clone of Jean, created by Mr. Sinister, and then when she found that out, she went a bit crazy and became the Goblin Queen. Then the real Jean turned up, and it turned out she wasn't dead at all, and she also wasn't Phoenix at all, that the Phoenix had taken on the form 
of Jean Grey. And so all the atrocities committed by her were actually committed by the Phoenix Force using her physical form as a shell, a ghost, if you will. With this, she destroyed the planet of the Asparagus people. And that uh, Jean was actually blameless for all the atrocities. Uh, but interestingly enough, she spent... Uh, Hell of a, she's still dead in the X-Men universe. She was a, around for a long time after she'd been found, and then she died again. And she's been... I think she was basically dead for 10 years, and she's now been dead for about 10 years. So that means since 1963, she spent 20 years dead. She's also been photocopied a lot. Yeah, in a way to sort of get Jean back. And she's one of the most important dead people in comics outside of, say, Gwen Stacy. In fact... Yeah, no, the only more important dead person is actually Uncle Ben. In terms of the fact that he's the constant motivator for Peter Parker as Spider-Man. Mm. Gambit is also rumoured for this film with Channing Tatum hotly tipped. Now, this being the mid-80s, he can still be the same person who would have helped Wolverine in 1979 in Universe A or B, originally played by Taylor Kitsch. <laughs> with the force of a spring breeze. Um, so, currently we've got Charles confirmed... Eric, confirmed. That's the younger versions of each. We've got Raven, confirmed. Logan, rumoured. But let's face it, confirmed, folks. We've got Remy, rumoured. We've got Hank, confirmed. Bringing back Beast. Pietro, he's back, confirmed. From the sounds of it, Blink's back as well. And we've got Apocalypse, confirmed. Plus, if they make it in the 80s, feasibly they could have Scott, Gene, Aurora, and if they have time, Cable. Given that Singer isn't so hot with balanced ensemble pieces, this could get crowded. And here we hit a snag. You can't explore new antagonists and new characters if it always has to come back to Charles, Eric, Raven and bloody Wolverine. So I really hope the focus shifts in the next few years. I think if they keep McAvoy and Fassbender in almost puppet master roles... That could still work. Mm-hmm. Keep them apart and have them uh, both in charge of their respective teams, but have the teams do the actual interacting. At the time of uh, release on this podcast, it's still being directed by Brian Singer. This is X-Men Apocalypse and is being written by four people, including Singer himself and Simon Kinberg, who wrote uh, X-Men Days of Future Past. So it's in relatively safe hands since Simon Kinberg also wrote X-Men 3 The Last Stand maybe he's got better well obviously he's got better because Days of Future Past is better than X-Men 3 yeah Jane Goldman, uh, Simon Kinberg, and Matthew Vaughan did the uh, ah Matthew Vaughan did the story for this Days of Future Past. Vaughan is not involved in any way with Apocalypse. That I think is one of the greatest tragedies. I would have loved to see Matthew Vaughan return to this. He's not interested in doing sequels. That makes me sad. He was the best thing in this, as I've said before, as I said earlier, keeping. Brian Singer on as the Godfather of this means you can never really be incredible. Is it specifically sequels that Vaughn's not interested in, or is he done with superhero movies? No, no, sequels. So feasibly, he could get picked up by Marvel. <laughs> he could. At the time of uh, release, Ant-Man still doesn't have a director. Consider Brian Singer. Except- oh, consider Matthew Vaughn. <laughs> I'm kidding. If you consider Brian Singer, though, maybe Matthew Vaughn can do X-Man. <laughs> Where would you rather have the talent right now? Oh, here we go. Gambit, just been announced. Oh. 
And? Starring Channing Tatum. It is Channing Tatum. No, as in like a movie of Gambit. Oh, right. Oh, no. Spin-offs, folks. It didn't even really work with Wolverine, and he's the strongest character in X-Men. Weren't you just saying that a Raven film would be a good thing? I don't want to see a Raven film. If they are going to do a Raven film, one during this period, to allow us to understand her motivations in Days of Future Past better. Gotcha. Acceptable. Mm. I don't know. I'm not really a fan of spin-offs. It would appear that what they're probably going to try to do is make their own MCU with spin-offs every few years and then a big, all-together-now X-Men film. Mm. But we already know that Brian Singer can't do ensemble pieces. He is not... Joss Whedon. Oh, well, we'll see. We shall see. The future is not set. We have no fate but what we make for ourselves. This is true. The future is whatever you make it. So make it a good one. I was actually, when you said Channing Tatum had been um, announced for or rumoured for um, Gambit. He might be a good cable. Yeah. But, no, obviously he's just been cast as Gambit, so new. Yeah, but I, I don't. I at the time I thought actually, yeah, that could work quite well. But uh, one of right part of the appeal for me for Gambit because he was one of my favourite characters when I was reading the X Men as a teenager. Well, already he's kind of a dated character because he he's all bit. slimy. I don't know that I would go so far as to say slimy, but he's. I, I, right, I suspect that the reason that I liked uh, Fassbender so much in First Class and the reason that I liked McAvoy so much in uh, Days of Future Past is I have a bit of a thing for wounded men. Mm-hmm. And that was always part of the appeal with Gambit, that he had this big psychological uh, injury in his past that he wouldn't talk about and that was always kind of threatening to overwhelm everything about his present. Mm. And all of the most interesting elements of his story were the things that alluded to that and got you closer and closer and closer. To like Sinister would turn up and Sabretooth would turn up and go, we know what you've done. Exactly. We could tell these people, don't exactly. you dare. And so. I don't know that Channing Tatum is really the right person to pull that off. Mm. I mean, obviously Taylor Kitsch was definitely not the right person <laughs> to pull that off. So, you know, hey, maybe slight improvement. We shall see. We shall. It does seem like it's in safe hands. It could be. Again, this could have been a hell of a lot worse. As it is, it's the second best X-Men film. It's excellent. No. It's very good. And we leave on a high note, which is different. Usually when we cover very long series, we leave on a kind of, oh, they ran this one into the ground. Like with Alien. This is really unusual, though, because this is they ran it into the ground and then dug it up, dusted it off and improved it. <laughs> they pushed all the way through to Australia. Never happens. Yeah. It is kind of a Phoenix-like. Okay, we'll leave you on that then. Uh, and let's actually finish on uh, Time in a Bottle, because it's a wonderful song and uh, extremely appropriate for this particular film. Stay tuned after the music for an audio refresher on the X-Men timeline, plus some questions from Sharon. Next week we begin the Transformers series, followed by Planet of the Apes. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Neural Neural Handshake Handshake Complete. Complete. 
If I could save time in a bottle, the first thing that I'd like to do is to save every day till eternity passes away, just to spend them with you. If I could make days last forever. If words could make wishes come true, I'd save every day like a treasure, and then again I would spend them with you. But there never seems to be enough time to do the things you want to do once you find them. I looked around enough to know. You're the one I want to go through time with. If I had a box just for wishes and dreams that had never come true. The box would be empty, except for the memory of how they were answered by you. But there never seems to be enough time to do the things you want to do once you find them. I've looked around enough to know you're the one I want to go. The timeline of the X-Men movies is a mess of contradictions brought on by various writers, constantly adding to a replica of the comic continuity over seven films in a 15-year period without discussion. However, if you divide it into three universes, A, B, and C, it really is much simpler. These correspond with three distinct phases of writing: the original continuity, a second which attempts to adapt the old continuity seamlessly into a strong origin story without raising too many questions, and a third attempt to consolidate these two. The following theories allow for three distinct timelines, which intersect and overlap repeatedly but diverge at two major points. In Universe A, which covers the continuity of The first three X-Men movies and the two Wolverine films, Charles and Eric meet not in 1962 in their early 30s, but in 1949 in their late teens. The events of First Class and Days of Future Past do not happen. The world does not become truly aware of mutants until the late 20th century. Charles forms the X-Men considerably later, recruiting Hank, Scott, Aurora, and Jean. Charles and Eric remain friends from 1949 through to at least the early 80s, visiting a young Jean Grey while Charles still has the use of his legs. At some point after this, they have a falling out, possibly over how Charles forces Jean to repress the Phoenix Force. Eric teams up with Mystique, who has been laying low for most of the 20th century, and then recruits a lobotomized Victor Creed, now a lumbering brute. X-Men 1, 2, and 3 play out. Scott, Charles, and Jean die, and Eric and Raven are depowered. 
This accounts for why Charles said he met Eric at age 17 in X-Men 1, and why he is unfamiliar with Magneto's Cerebro and Telepathy-blocking helmet, which is clearly not the same one he would have got from Shaw, which Charles would have been aware of. Wolverine got his Metal Claws in 1979, and then loses them in 2013, though this also happens in... Universe B. This is where things happen differently, and we get the events of First Class. Two major changes kick this one off. One is Sebastian Shaw witnessing the first manifestation of Eric's magnetic powers. His attempting to shape Eric into a weapon has a profound effect on the young boy, locking his abilities to his anger and sending him on a quest for a very specific vengeance. In Universe A, Shaw was not present in Auschwitz, and in fact probably wasn't born, as otherwise his plan in First Class would have gone unopposed. The other change is that in this universe, young Charles comes downstairs and discovers young Raven. In Universe A, he was asleep and never met her, and she simply snuck away, missing that powerful connection. It is simply too significant a bond for them to ignore, time and again, on meeting and affecting one another in X-Men 1-3. In fact, if you want to get really tinfoil hat theory on this one, Germany is six hours ahead of New York, so if the incident where Shaw killed Eric's mother occurred at five past nine in the morning there... Eric's resulting anguish could have been felt across the world by a sleeping Charles at five past two, waking him up and sending him downstairs to investigate what would turn out to be Raven. So once again, the events of Universe B would depend entirely on the presence of Sebastian Shaw. So in Universe A, perhaps he wasn't born at all, or was born not a mutant. This means the assassination of Trask in Paris 1973 was also new to Universe B, and in Universe A, without this attempt on his life, Trask never got full funding or Raven's DNA. If he had, the Sentinels would have been a government-funded necessity and present in the earlier X-Men films. Having said that, the instance of a Sentinel in the Danger Room program in the Universe A X-Men 3 hints at a lurking presence that implies the mutant response robots are still being developed in a way that will lead to a similar grim future in that 2023. Despite these differences, this Universe B still plays out in similar ways to Universe A, with Jean becoming Dark Phoenix and murdering Scott, evident as Wolverine has these memories in Days of Future Past. However, it's possible that in this Universe B she did not destroy Charles, and Eric did not get depowered. Alternatively, Charles's mind went into the body of that comatose mutant at the epilogue of X-Men 3. He then had his face remodeled with plastic surgery to look like his previous visage and had his own legs broken to replicate his previous injury. Plus, Magneto just got better. Mm. I prefer to think of it as the former and Jean never killed Charles as the latter is bonkers. Either way, I like to interpret Logan's reaction of how is this possible at the end of The Wolverine as amazement that Charles and Eric are working together rather than that Charles is alive, simply because it's never mentioned in Days of Future Past. Either that or the epilogue from The Wolverine is a remnant from Universe A and is actually nothing to do with the Universe B 2023 we start with in Days of Future Past. Universe B and possibly A culminate in the events set in the dark future of 2023. This is erased when Raven escapes the assassination attempt in Paris, Eric attacks Nixon, and Raven shows him mercy. The timeline then diverges and skews off into the new Universe C. 
This is a way for Brian Singer and company to undo the events of Universe A and the hash job that the X-Men 3 storyline became, while still retaining the strongest aspects of both universes and bringing us back to a new timeline that will continue on through the 70s into the 80s and 90s for upcoming films and result in the brighter future that Logan wakes up in. This would seem to be sometime after 2006 when the aftermath of X-Men 3 would have taken place, wherein Scott, Jean and Charles are alive and the events of X-Men 2 and 3, The Wolverine and possibly even X-Men 1 didn't happen. So what did happen for sure in Universe C? The events of First Class and the 1973 parts of Days of Future Past, along with everything that's coming up in X-Men Apocalypse, The Wolverine 3 and beyond. Some notes on characters. Emma Frost now appears to be dead, killed by Trask during his experiment. She could still conceivably have given birth to a child she named Emma, who inherited her diamond skin mutant ability, who was adopted by Kayla's family to become Silver Fox's younger sister in the events of X-Men Origins Wolverine. This happened in 1979 as the Three Mile Island disaster occurs during its events. Or of course it could be another mutant named Emma with diamond skin. Alex Summers, Havoc in First Class, is the perfect age to have married and sired a son named Scott in 1967. This would mean Scott was 5 during Days of Future Past and 38 during X-Men. Because he's about 12 during X-Men Origins Wolverine. Or maybe a bit older. Moira McTaggart, the CIA agent from First Class, had a daughter whom she named Moira, who talks with a Scottish accent and is one of Charles' friends in Universe A. The director for the Department of Defense in X-Men 3 is a big black man named Trask. It's feasible that Bolivar could have sired him sometime before the events of Days of Future Past, or it could be an unconnected man also named Trask. You decide. If Mystique and Azazel had a son, as it is implied Nightcrawler is, he must have been conceived within months of their first meeting, as Azazel was dead within a year thanks to Trask. Or maybe they met during Universe A at some different point and she had Nightcrawler there, but Nightcrawler never existed in Universe B or C. Or maybe she's not Nightcrawler's mum, we never find out. In Universe A, William Stryker meets James slash Logan and Victor in a Vietnamese prisoner of war camp before drafting them for Team X. This could still have happened during Universe B as the war wasn't over until 1975 and in 73, Stryker clearly hasn't yet met Wolverine slash James slash Logan. Either way, in Universe A, he sends his son to Charles' school without the desired result. In X2, he says Wolverine has been wandering around for 15 years without his memory, when it's actually been 27 years. This we have to interpret as Stryker either A, just messing with Logan, or B, that in Universe A, the Weapon X incident happened way later in 1991, and X-Men Origins Wolverine took place in Universe B. In X-Men 2, we also see a human-looking Hank McCoy on TV, but he's hairy in X-Men 3. We can assume from this that he did meet Mystique at some point in Universe A, or if not, developed some sort of mutation inhibitor over the years. It certainly wasn't what the bald, walking Charles was using at the beginning of X-Men 3, though, as he would not have been able to use his telepathy on Gene. And it is implied in multiple timelines I've read that Raven was the one who assassinated John F. Kennedy, with Eric being blamed and incarcerated. They may have omitted this from the final film to retain sympathy for the character. So that's the X-Men timeline simplified, codified and clarified. If future X-Men movie writers want to contact me for more details, I charge a very reasonable hourly rate for my continuity untangling services.
Okay, so any questions? Right, only a couple, really. Um, I've got one for each universe, which is appropriate. Okay. Okay, so universe A, uh, you mentioned that Wolverine loses his metal claws in 2013. Mm. How? Like the Silver Samurai cuts them off and then tries to suck out his juice. Oh, yeah, I've forgotten about that. Yeah, okay. he's grieving for what happened in X-Men 3. Now, feasibly, he could have been grieving for just killing Jean, not necessarily Charles being dead. But maybe Charles is dead as well. And you explain how Charles came back, because it's never explained. Indeed. Well, also, he's Wolverine. He's grieving for something at most points in his life. Mm. But he's definitely grieving for Jean. Indeed. I've done some reading up on the official reason Charles was able to return from the dead looking exactly the same. It's nothing to do with plastic surgery. Apparently, it's not just any old comatose mutant body that he jumps into at the epilogue of X-Men 3. It is, in fact, his twin brother, P. Xavier. Entirely identical, entirely comatose since birth, and seemingly also unable to use his legs. Never mind the fact that Charles's mutation should be anchored in his own genetic code, and even identical twins do not have identical DNA, which he was separated from. Never mind the fact that they don't keep comatose people on life support for 75 years, with absolutely no sign of brain activity. His body is vaporised by the Phoenix Force, but luckily he has a handy spare. There's a reason this was never explained in Days of Future Past, and that's that it's absolute horseshit. This is exactly the kind of infantile, lazy writing that I would expect from Zach Penn, the writer of Inspector Gadget, Elektra, X-Men 3, and now apparently the writer of Pacific Rim 2. He stole my job. My only hope is that as with the Incredible Hulk and the Avengers, someone eons more skillful than him, hint, hint, steps in for a heavy rewrite before rehearsals start. There's also a reason I didn't incorporate that into my timeline theory, which is that I only used what we were told and what we can ascertain from within the imagery and dialogue of the seven films. The canonical Fox-approved reason isn't actually mentioned anywhere, aside from the X-Men 3 director's commentary by that fucking chud, Brett Ratner. It's also worth noting that the Fox timeline cannot explain why 1980s Charles is walking and using telepathy at the beginning of X-Men 3, whereas my overarching web of theories does. Thank God for me. Sorry, I've been watching a lot of Jimquisition lately. It's incredibly compelling. I heartily recommend you check him out. Right, uh, okay, so in Universe B, um, this is kind of part question, part speculation. Uh, Could Jean have died in a version of Dark Phoenix more consistent with the comics in Universe B? What, not shit? Yeah. If uh, Charles and Mystique's meeting took place and uh, Magneto's experiences with Shaw took place... then the events of X3 almost certainly would not have happened or certainly wouldn't have played out the way they did because Magneto's behaviour in X3 is entirely inconsistent 
with the character as Michael Fassbender plays him. Yeah. Uh, Wolverine still has the memory of stabbing Jean to death. Yeah, but this is what I'm saying. If there was an alternative version of the Dark Phoenix persona coming out Mm. that just didn't happen to involve Magneto going, let's do this thing that's going to involve all of us getting stabbed with mutant cure. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Is the answer. Yes. Okay. Um, and uh, in Universe C, where we've established none of this happened... Except First Class and the 73 stuff in Days of Future Past. Does this mean that the Phoenix Force that Charles imprisoned in Jean when she was a teenager is still there? Or is she a completely different Jean because the James McAvoy Charles, especially following the events of 1973, would not have done that? To be continued, folks... In X-Men Apocalypse, when Jean gets recruited and Charles decides not to turn her into a Fruit Loop. (laughs) Probably. I would say she looks pretty chill when uh, Logan meets her in 2006. Not like, they're coming back, the dreams, the visions. But if she is a more reconciled version of herself, Mm. why is she with Scott? Good question. (laughs) And also, why is, does Scott still suck? We don't know he still sucks, technically. Hey, get off my girlfriend. That's all I'm defined by. We actually, we don't know for a fact that they're together. All we know is he stopped Wolverine from stroking her face. Which could simply have been, excuse me, that's inappropriate behaviour towards a fellow teacher. Yeah. I think it's like, and everything's back to normal. Mm. And it was all a dream. <laughs> To further elaborate on this theory, how did Shaw get into and thus create Universe B? This is the big question. It's the thing I left out of the actual uh, main piece because by their rules that they laid down, the only thing that basically changes the timeline and changes it into the one true timeline because it's not tangent universes, it changes A to B to C, is someone goes back and changes something. So if the thing that changes everything for Universe B is Shaw, something had to put Shaw there. So I have th- no answer for that. <laughs> Neither have I. My theory is either A, Shaw is a time traveller and comes from some point in the future, uh, came back and, and is basically playing the 1940s, the 1950s and 1960s. And he seems so very sure of himself that that would kind of stand to reason. You know, he's hanging around with the Nazis while they're winning. Uh, and by the time they start to lose, maybe he ditches them and goes for Americans. Um, and then in the 60s, he's uh, he's starting to blackmail politicians to get the Cold War sent in his direction. It's um, to get the conditions of the Cold War to play in his direction. His incredibly assured performance on screen would suggest maybe he's from a different time. However, it could simply be someone else came back in time and just delayed his father for an hour or so on the day that Sebastian Shaw was supposed to be conceived, and a different sperm made it to the egg. 
thus making him a mutant, thus making him Sebastian Shaw, the mutant. So something happened to get Sebastian Shaw put in the timeline. That's just the theory in that that allows the whole A, B, C universe thing to actually come into being. As far as I'm concerned, a lot of the official canon timeline stuff would ask us not to think too hard about things, and I prefer the kind of crazy crackpot tinfoil hat theories where you do think too hard about things. <laughs> 